right, everyone. Um, can everybody hear me in the back? Okay, good. All right, well, good morning. I think you all know that I'm Clark Urban. Thank you so much for being here. By my watch, it's close to 10.05, and I want to start as promptly as possible so as to maximize our time with our wonderful speaker. Um, we are so fortunate to have with us this morning one of America's foremost experts on foreign policy in general and Russia-Ukraine, which will be the topic of our talk today in particular, namely Dr. Fiona Hill. Um, so, um, she needs no introduction, but she deserves one, so I'm going to give her one. <laughs> she is, as I think you all know already, the senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe within the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. She's also, and we were just chatting about this concurrently, Chancellor of Durham University in her native United Kingdom, and she was recently elected to Harvard's Board of Overseers, a school which nearly beat Yale yesterday, for those of you who were <laughs> watching the game. <laughs> As we all know, her most recent government service was as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council in the White House. She is the author or co-author of several books, the most recent of which was her best-selling memoir called There Is Nothing For You Here. She has a master's degree in Russian and modern history from St. Andrews University in Scotland, and also has a master's in Soviet studies and a doctorate in history from Harvard. We're going to deviate at Fiona's request, she's just come in from the UK, from our normal lecture and then Q&A format, and instead to make it a conversation between her and me for the first 30 minutes or so, after which I'll open it up for questions from all of you. So with that, please give a formal welcome to Fiona, and we'll get started. Okay, so we're just going to alternate turns here at the microphone. So the first question, Fiona. So uh, I would argue that the trajectory of the war in Ukraine is as predictable as it is depressing, meaning intense attention and focus here in the United States and on the part of our Western partners, wide support all along the ideological divide and the partisan divide, 24-7 news coverage with our marquee TV anchors and print reporters reporting from Ukraine. Zelensky hails the 21st century of Winston Churchill, and now, almost two years later, Ukraine is hardly ever mentioned in the news. Generally speaking, Democrats are supportive, Republicans increasingly less so, and to the extent the American public is focusing on foreign policy at all now, they're focused on Gaza. So my question is, what went wrong? What, if anything, could the administration have done to keep up support for Ukraine, and what, if anything, can the administration do now to turn things around and rekindle the kind of popular support that is key to providing Ukraine with the political, economic, and military support it needs to prevail? Well, um, thank you very much, Kurt. I just want to check, because um, someone said up at the back and suggest you can't hear. Can, can everyone hear okay at the back? It's difficult. It's difficult? Is this a handheld mic? Uh, yes. I wonder if we could uh, move away from the podium and hold the mic like this. Would that help? No, that's still not working very well. Hello, is that a little better? Yes. Maybe if we just talk into it yeah, directly. Talk into it. Better or not? Shall I come closer? <laughs> um, let's see. So who can't hear? Can I hear? You can hear now. No. I think we're going to have to come okay. from uh, behind the podium. All right. <laughs> I'm trying to speak a little more clearly okay. here. Um, well, this is, of course, uh, the big question. And as you suggested uh, at the very beginning, it is quite typical uh, that once a war starts to drag on, that attention fades. And I think we could look at most Korean wars in history, unless the United States is heavily involved. But even then, if we look back to Iraq and Afghanistan, over decades, attention faded. Vietnam, obviously, um, somewhat more explosive on the uh, political front, but still, I would say that most uh, Americans were not paying uh, close attention to what was happening on the battlefield back during the Vietnam War either. So, um, you know, part of the issue is here, um, I think, once people get overwhelmed by news, uh, that they start to tune out. And, you know, I would suspect, uh, you know, tragically that um, similar things are even happening with horrific co coverage coming out of Gaza. Eventually it just becomes so overwhelming and people feel helpless, so they start to tune out. I certainly know from my own interactions with people, it's one of the reasons I actually didn't want to uh, do a speech today, because people's attitudes uh, and events happen so quickly. But, you know, one, one thing that you might have is your stock speech, 
uh, immediately becomes quite irrelevant because people are having a hard time keeping up with things and frankly often don't want to. Now in the case of Ukraine, um, you know, right from the very beginning, it was obvious that this was a system-changing war. And some interviews I gave early on, and I think I probably scared people a little bit too unduly, by basically saying it was like World War III. And I didn't mean that that meant that we were going to end up in a nuclear exchange uh, with Russia. But what I meant was it was uh, one of those conflicts where you realize that all of the geopolitical certainties that you've been holding onto have changed. Not perhaps because of the war itself, but that the war was revealing different cleavages. And what we can see as a result of this war is that, of course, in Ukraine, everyone has taken sides. And now that we also have uh, the war between Israel and Hamas and all of the strife in Gaza after the October 7th uh, attacks by Hamas on Israel, we've almost got another front in a similar kind of global war. In fact, if we looked at it structurally, the Hamas attack is not that dissimilar from Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in uh, basically in World War II by opening up what seems to be an unrelated front but what exacerbates the actual you know, situation elsewhere, for example, the land war in Europe. World, uh, World War um, II, of course, began with Hitler invading Poland and then moving on to invade other countries in 1939, the Soviet Union taking advantage of that as well, invading uh, Finland, uh, the Baltic states and taking them back. And then, of course, the, the war um, in the East uh, with Japan takes on a whole different dynamic, but they become you know, linked together. In this case with Ukraine, it's the largest land war in Europe since World War II. It's very much a European war. It's shown how uh, the uh, failure of uh, our mechanisms for uh, basically deconfliction and uh, deterrence, uh, basically NATO uh, failed to deter this because of course NATO's writ didn't extend uh, beyond the member countries to the rest of uh, Europe. One of the European countries were left but weren't in NATO in a grey zone. Uh, Russia um, sees itself still as a continuation of not just the Russian Empire but also the Soviet Union and sees the world still in terms of spheres of influence and sees Ukraine and not just Ukraine but Belarus or the other former Soviet republics, independent states for the past 30 years, as well as many other countries of Eastern Europe that used to be part of the Eastern Bloc uh, as part of its sphere. That's why the Finns uh, decided that they wanted to join NATO because they saw that this was actually a huge shift now in European security, and they felt vulnerable too, after being very confident, literally for decades, uh, after World War II, that they could defend themselves, then they weren't so sure. And also what you start to see in, in the case of the war in Ukraine is the rest of the world making judgments about things. In fact, uh, the war has become, um, I would say, a proxy war against the United States. Russia certainly sees it that way, uh, in, the, in the view of now pushing the United States out of Europe, but perhaps you know, even uh, further afield. Putin has said this very clearly. This is not me saying this or interpreting it. Putin has said this repeatedly. And uh, we also get from uh, other uh, countries around the world who look at uh, things in a very different uh, light, the kind of view that uh, this is an opportunity to move away from a world dominated by the United States as the sole hegemon. China obviously has been expressing this for some time, so has Russia. But at the Brookings Institution, we had over the last um, couple of years of, uh, just even before the war in Ukraine, while it was percolating and um, bubbling along, a series of dialogues that colleagues of mine were running with counterparts from um, you know, countries and think tanks that we never normally talk, uh, talk to, uh, not in the European sense uh, in any case. Brazil, um, Turkey obviously, we still do anyway, Sometimes one wonders. Uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, South Africa, uh, a number of other countries. And what we were really struck by was their perception once the war starts that this wasn't really a conflict between the United States and Russia, though many people thought that was the case, but the beginning of a confrontation between the United States and China. And we were quite taken aback by that. It wasn't something that we'd actually thought of. Part of it's our rhetoric. Because, of course, once the war in Ukraine uh, got underway, this gets back to the global dimensions of it. We all started, of course, commenting that China is watching, the rest of the world is watching how we handle this. 
you know, we were obviously thinking about the precedent of having, you know, basically an invasion of another country uh, by a neighbour, um, a kind of basically neo-imperial uh, attack on uh, on Ukraine, uh, the prohibition against war uprooted, and you know, forcible changes of borders, something we said we would never see after World War Two. But in other parts of the world, um, they will of course point out that the United States did that in Iraq. Uh, the United States moved into Afghanistan, of course, more understandable, but Iraq not at all. Uh, and uh, you know, their, their feeling was that, well, Russia is just doing the same as the United States does, you know, either in its own backyard, Panama, Haiti, etc., etc., or that it does further afield when it doesn't like a regime in place. So we were immediately having a hard time explaining you know, what the war in Ukraine was about. There's also a view, particularly in countries like South Africa, that Russia, again, as the Soviet Union, they don't distinguish between the two. They don't see that Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, as other um, states once were too. That Russia was the leader of the non-aligned movement, and that Russia was also the, uh, the champion um, of national liberation. Um, it was, of course, in places like Mozambique and Angola on an ideological basis during the Cold War. But for South Africa, they think it was Russia, not any other country, that really helped push back against apartheid and to uh, end apartheid in South Africa and help South Africa, this is the view of the ANC, on a different path. So they refused to see that Russia was a colonial power and to see that um, Russia was invading you know, a former colony, they preferred to see this as a territorial dispute or that it's another example of, of the United States you know, pushing uh, countries into a corner. For Brazilians, uh, when we spoke to them, their view was, this is interesting, that Russia is a declined power, not very relevant in Latin and South America, relevant as a counterweight, perhaps, the United States. One of our Brazilian interlocutors said we're doomed to be on the same continent as the United States. That was the word they chose. I wonder if that was in Portuguese. But um, anyway, they said doomed in English very clearly. And um, uh, then went downhill from there, the discussion. Uh, basically, they thought that... Um, this was a kind of a testing ground in Ukraine by the United States for a war against China, and they wanted to know what China thought about this. So one of President Lula, when he was re-elected, first move was to go to China and talk to Xi Jinping. And, and the whole you know, idea then that we're in a, a totally different geopolitical framework. This is why you know, I'm talking about this at uh, some length. Because there's a sort of feeling now that nobody wants to be uh, basically dominated by the United States, that that period of Pax Americana after World War II with the UN uh, and other international institutions dominated by the United States has passed. And although China has emerged as obviously uh, the major counterpower, uh, there is also a, a repudiation of the idea that the rest of the world is going to be caught between two blocks of China and the United States on a new Cold War frame. So the more over the last several years that we've been talking here in the United States and think tanks and everywhere else about a new Cold War with China, the more that other parts of uh, the world, think tanks, elites, you know, populations have been stepping back from that. And of course, since Iraq and the US invasion of Iraq, there's been a kind of sense of the United States as a predatory power uh, that's been coming out more and more, of course, Vladimir Putin has exploited that to the hilt. So while we're losing our focus on Ukraine, uh, Putin uh, and others have focused very clearly on all of the opportunities to exploit, you know, basically the discussion around this, you know, understanding themselves how other people are thinking about it in the rest of the world. So that's why Putin spends such a lot of time Courting, you know, the, the BRICS countries, the Brazils, the Indias, the Chinas, the South Africans, you know, which he knows that already is quite a negative uh, perception of the United States. India is a bit more ambivalent, by the way, and, uh, and I'm, I'm not quite so clear-cut on this. But Putin's basically now trying to exploit, in the same vein, the new front, as it were, in this geopolitical um, mess that we're in now, of Gaza. And you'll see uh, with unbelievable hypocrisy and hubris, which of course is what Putin and everybody else thinks the United States uh, does in any case, basically making common cause uh, with Palestinians, this is, this is Putin, and actually excoriating Israel, which Putin you know, was previously very supportive of up until his decision you know, basically to uh, throw his lot with Iran on getting drones and other military support in Ukraine, but basically um, against the United States. So Putin is basically accusing Israel, um, 
of doing exactly what he's doing in Ukraine, moving along to think, making sure that people will forget the atrocities that uh, Russia has uh, basically perpetrated in Ukraine because now we're all focused on the horrors uh, in Gaza. And Putin is betting that this will create a huge rift uh, with the rest of the world, where Europe, the collective West, as he puts it, including Japan, South Korea, Australia, Canada, you know, New Zealand, you know, the, the, the other you know, kind of countries that are very much allied in the United States um, in the response to, to Ukraine, that will all be put on the back foot because of what is happening uh, in, uh, in Gaza. And Putin is basically saying that what's happening in Gaza is uh, the result of United States imperialism, uh, the kinds of uh, you know, uh, activities the United States has engaged in, as he puts it, since the time of the Cold War. And he's actually getting quite a bit of traction uh, here um, on this particular issue. So that's what I mean about a, a, a conflict with, that reveals some huge global shifts. And I would actually argue right now, rather depressingly, I'm afraid, uh, that we now have what could uh, become, uh, at least in the near term, an almost irreparable rift between North and South, um, as we would uh, call it in the, in the world, uh, because of this sort of fusion of um, Ukraine and uh, the, uh, you know, basically the horrors of Israel and Gaza at a particular moment. And um, you know, unfortunately, the Ukrainians um, are really going to be um, you know, the victims of this. The United States and uh, Western support is something of a liability. Uh, the Ukrainians for quite some time tried to uh, make common cause with um, the so-called global south with countries in Africa and you know, India and elsewhere. India, you know, again, is a bit more sympathetic. But um, the rest of the, the world doesn't accept the Ukraine as a colony. Um, and I was told, you know, very bluntly, uh, that European uh, countries are always colonizers. Uh, and uh, there's no way that, you know, basically, um, you know, uh, Ukraine can be a colony also because uh, there's a view that uh, imperial countries only acquire colonies overseas. And as Ukraine is a contiguous territory, just like you know, uh, the Ottoman Empire and Austro-Hungary and perhaps the United States as well, apart with the exception of Hawaii, you know, that basically this is just all territorial acquisition. So the rest of the world sees, uh, in many respects, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia as a territorial dispute, not as the kinds of you know, actions uh, that uh, you know, an imperial power would hold. So in short, we're in a bind. And although we're not paying attention, Unfortunately, you know, the rest of the world is paying attention in a very different frame. And you know, the more that the war in Ukraine grinds on, uh, the less they'll be paying attention to that as well. The more they'll be demanding, in fact, I would say, that Ukraine capitulate to Russia, because the focus will be on trying to resolve uh, the horrors of uh, the Middle East. Back to, thank you, back to public opinion here in the United States. Critics say that President Biden hasn't done enough or done a good enough job of rallying public opinion here in the United States in support of the war in the way that FDR did in World War II or the Bushes did with respect to their wars. Do you agree with that criticism? And if you do, is the, is the problem partly that we're such a polarized country now that no president could rally public opinion around any issue to any significant degree? I think your latter point um, is really you know, the, the starting point for this, because it's not just that we're polarised in a partisan political um, sense, it's that the whole information space is fractured. I mean, who, what, what is the medium uh, in which you know, we get the maximal uh, group of people uh, you know, to be able to get their attention? Is it TikTok? I mean, that's kind of some of the articles in the paper. I mean, I'm trying to keep my daughter off TikTok. I don't go on TikTok. Ditto. But, you know, that seems to be actually increasingly where, you know, a lot of younger people, as well as Instagram, Facebook, you know, less, uh, but all kinds of Snapchat and all kinds of other uh, mediums. I mean, certainly when I ask my daughter where she gets her news from, because I was kind of assumed she knows nothing, which is <laughs> awful. You know, she's 16 because I'm talking to her about things. She's mostly doing the eye roll because she's after us. <laughs> but she says, Mom, I'm not an idiot. I get information, I know what's happening. And it's obviously from social media. So I don't know what this information is because I'm not on the social media. And I think that that is a real you know, problem for any leader. Um, I mean, we've seen, you know, obviously, what's happening on what used to be Twitter on X. Uh, and I think the other problem that we have now is just the, the political season that we're in. <laughs> Because already when uh, the war in uh, Ukraine broke out, of course, we've been at war since uh, Russia annexed Crimea back in 2014, and again, not being paying proper attention to all of this. But we were already in the kind of race towards the campaign. I mean, right from 
well, we never went out of it, actually, did we? I mean, in terms of thinking about the, um, uh, the whole drama, um, which, of course, was unfolding you know, here as well, uh, from uh, January 6th onwards, we've been in a kind of perpetual campaign or at least a perpetual political upheaval here. And in the midst of all of that and all the cacophony of different issues that we've had to deal with, I think it would be very difficult uh, for President Biden and his team you know, to get people's attention. When you've got a, a swathe of the population who doesn't think he's a legitimately elected leader, when you've got um, people, you know, basically Trump and others, talking down the administration all the time, we don't really have a unifying figure. In a recent um, interview I did with um, uh, Los Angeles Times, I, I didn't think they were actually going to quote this, which is always the dangers of you know, sort of saying something. <laughs> I said, so who have we got? Taylor Swift? Someone who can do that 
in this kind of ex officio, uh, uh, basically uh, presidential role. And in the UK, what I was just um, said, of course, that's the role of the royal family. They don't have the political discussions, but they do show up and you know make soothing noises as well as cutting you know ribbons and trying to in fact engage with people in a way that there's some of the symbol of the state rather than. Well, I mean, while I was there, there was a massive reshuffle. Every time you go to the UK as well, you kind of feel a little relieved that it's not just the United States, but also worried that, you know, this is something that's happening on pretty much every front at the moment in terms of political fracturing and also, you know, partisan, uh, uh, you know, basically polarisation. But um, if we can all kind of come up with an idea of, you know, how we could do this, I mean, I think that is the only way to get across. I don't think Biden is in that position or his team right now to be able to do this. Thank you. Two other quick questions and then we'll open it up. How is the war going now? It seems as though Ukraine is finally making some progress in the Crimea area. What is your assessment of where we, where we are right now with the war? Well, I'm glad you asked it like that, Kurt, because just a week ago, we've probably been saying, well, it's going you know, really badly, you know, Ukraine is losing. And I, I, I'm always trying to flip the narrative because if we've been having this discussion you know, two years ago, just you know, around the, the time of the invasion, the anticipation was that Ukraine would capitulate uh, in uh, a week or two weeks. That was Putin's um, assessment. That's why it was a special military operation and why he still calls it that, because he didn't intend to have a full-on war. Putin thought that Ukraine would crumble. Uh, he was surprised when they fought back. I mean, remember when Zelensky said you know, he didn't want to ride, he didn't want to leave, he wanted ammo, and he was going to basically stay. That wasn't what Putin was expecting. So it's actually a miracle that almost two years on, one could say that Ukraine has fought the Russians to a standstill, at least, on land uh, in uh, the territories that Russia seized very quickly at the beginning of the conflict, and has even made, albeit you know, some incremental gains, some gains back, given the fact that the Russians have dug in, got so many landmines and other um, you know, basically fortifications there. What is remarkable um, beyond that is that the uh, Ukrainians seem to have broken the stranglehold uh, that Russia established in the Black Sea. And it's, it's hitting the press now, but it's been like that for actually you know, quite a few months, in fact, because the Ukrainians were quite inventive in the use of drones, just like the Russians have you know, been uh, using you know, drones against them as <coughs> part of this um, endless bombardment. Uh, and also various sabotage uh, operations. I mean, we now know it was uh, the Ukrainians who sabotaged Nord Stream 2. I have to confess, especially as I'm somewhere like this, that I was wrong initially. I thought maybe the Russians had done it themselves. This is the kind of thing that Putin does, but then you know, it's become uh, more obvious over time that the Ukrainians had done it, although an, an off-the-books operation. One thing we have to remember is the Ukrainians were part of the same security and military system. So, you know, the fact that we kind of underestimate them is bad on us as well as bad on Russia. Because, I mean, the Russians uh, were not the uh, only uh, members of the, the Soviet military. In fact, Ukrainians were always the, the second um, in terms of the uh, level of command in the security and uh, the military during the, uh, the Cold War. So that was a huge mistake right from the beginning of underestimating Ukrainians. And all of the um, heavy lift uh, aircraft, a lot of the um, military production was made, it was in Ukraine anyway. So, you know, the Ukrainians always had capacity. We just were not, you know, think of it in, in, in that regard. So that the Ukrainians could be inventive in warfare should not be actually a surprise. Now, of course, I mean, the other uh, uh, fact is that they've had a lot of support from uh, the United States and also from uh, Europe writ large. Uh, and that has been um, instrumental in uh, what they've managed to achieve. But in the Black Sea, they've had a lot less uh, assistance, actually, because we've been very reluctant you know, to basically take on um, uh, the Russians uh, directly. So this is all um, the actions of the Ukrainians. And in fact, they've been so effective there that Russia has started to pull out uh, many of its ships from uh, the Black Sea ports in Sebastopol, and that they've just recently signed um, a... Um, uh, I, I don't know whether we call it a good agreement or uh, basically with uh, Abkhazia, which is the breakaway region of Georgia, uh, to uh, reconstruct a kind of an existing Coast Guard uh, port facility into a new naval base in a place called Ochamtira, which of course just you know, transfers the problem to the other side of the Black Sea into Georgia. But nonetheless, that's a really significant sign that the Russians are no longer confident about their hold on uh, Crimea. So this actually. Um, notwithstanding all of the expectations that were hyped up around the counteroffensive, suggests that you know Ukraine actually has managed to achieve something here, and could in fact hold its own 
along as, it, as long as it continues to get support for some time. And that ought to be uh, the starting point for thinking about the future. Not thinking that Ukraine has been defeated, but that Ukraine has actually prevailed against all the odds and even had you know, something more of a success on the battlefield. But if we start to then think about you know, where we would go in terms of a negotiation, it should be certainly flipped from the point of view of Ukraine being more successful rather than Ukraine being defeated. Because anything that we think about the future has to be predicated on the idea that Ukraine is a sovereign, independent country and that the entire world, including Russia, has recognised its territorial integrity over and over and over again. This is not a territorial dispute. This is you know, something very different. And we have to be very careful about not setting a precedent you know, for other settings for the, you know, basically the uh, forcible seizure of uh, territory. So it's flipping the narrative uh, and then thinking you know, where we go from here, because clearly both Ukraine and Russia could continue this uh, conflict for quite some time. And even if we removed our support, the Ukrainians would continue to fight. So we just you know, need to get that clear until they think that they've actually got a better position. And you've just anticipated my final question, that is, when and how does the war end? And then I'll open it up. Well, look, um, wars um, sometimes never end. I mean, they just morph into one thing you know, after another. Uh, oftentimes, they, they end through a negotiation, which is what the presumption you know, would be in, in this uh, case. But the question is, on what terms and you know, with what outcome? And you know, sometimes they end in absolute victory, and it's a little hard to you know, see that in uh, the terms that have been uh, defined. Now, Putin would be very happy to end the conflict for now where it is today. So Putin thinks in terms of bouts and tournaments. Remember, he um, was a judo master as a younger person. And if any of you, um, you know, have ever engaged in judo, or in, in his case, it's a bit like mixed martial arts as well, because that's something else that he uh, took, uh, took part in, or a boxing uh, bout or tournament. You know, you can win on points, and you're always thinking about the next match. So Putin would be very happy to pocket Donbass, uh, Crimea, Zaporizhia and Kherson, all the um, territories have been taken, negotiate a kind of a line uh, that would be sort of a ceasefire line, and hold on to that until the next opportunity comes around for a knockout blow or some other uh, basically effort to defeat Ukraine. If you look at what happened in Georgia in 2008 uh, when uh, Russia invaded, um, they, they stopped short of Tbilisi, but they recognized the, the two uh, breakaway republics of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Now they've got this deal with Abkhazia to build a new base. Uh, South Ossetia is constantly being talked about being absorbed into Russia with North Ossetia across the Caucasus Mountains. And Mikhail Saakashvili, who was uh, basically uh, the president and bete noir um, of uh, Putin, the town president of Georgia, is now in a Georgian jail, uh, basically um, starving to death, having had a strange kind of side um, career in, uh, in Ukraine. And uh, Georgia, although it's still talking with the you know, European Union about some association, is kind of off the, the table in terms of longer-term discussion. That is exactly what Putin would sort of aim for uh, in Ukraine immediately afterwards, undermining Zelensky, which you know, wouldn't be so difficult to do after you know, kind of the war is tamped down. You mentioned Churchill before. Churchill was ousted after World War II. He wasn't you know, seen as the man for that moment, but he was seen the man for the war. Zelensky's put off elections uh, that is supposed to happen uh, next year in 2024 while the war's raging. You know, there's, there's you know, as, as, as everywhere, there's lots of politics, and it would be, you know, unclear that Zelensky would prevail over uh, the longer term. There'd be, you know, kind of back to the kind of politicking in Ukraine that we're all familiar with, you know, beforehand. Putin would reckon that uh, the West's attention would definitely uh, move on if uh, there was some uh, kind of, you know, ceasefire arrangement. Obviously, there'd be a lot of questions about Ukraine's security, about trying to stop you know, Russia from doing this again, but Russia would definitely keep building up because Putin at this point, his whole future is also dependent on this war economy and keeping up you know, kind of basically the agitation and the anti-Western perspective. Putin's whole presidency now is predicated on this massive proxy war with the United States and the West. It's the one thing that keeps him in place and the by crushing the enemies within as well as the enemies without. I mean, unfortunately, if you know, this war didn't exist, Putin would have to invent something like this because his whole position is now dependent on it as well. So we can't imagine, and we shouldn't imagine, that all would be you know, peaceable. And the, and the Ukrainians certainly know that. So that's why they're trying to figure out how they get the best kind of guarantees. And of course, what's happening in Gaza makes that much more difficult because you'd need the rest of the world to basically be supporting Ukraine. 
are not ready to kind of you know sell them out because of what's happening you know somewhere else. Right. Thank you. All right, we'll open it up for questions. Yes. Oh, sure, of course. Yes. Recognizing that fracture and geopolitical crisis don't happen in a vacuum, right? They're the result of years of policy making and decision making. I'm wondering if, as you think back over the last 50 years of American foreign policy, uh, or how are you? Yeah, no, I was just thinking 50. <laughs> um, are there a couple of instances of policies that were enacted or decisions that were made that you can't help but wonder if only those have been made differently? Maybe the repercussions of what we find ourselves in now might be a little different. You could just paraphrase that for those in the back. Uh, yeah, um, it's basically um, incidents or events, developments over the last 50 years or so where you know, things could have been different, where we're back in a different place. I have to say Iraq is one of the big ones. Um, if that decision to go into Iraq had not been made in 2003, I think the world would be absolutely a different place. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to um, underestimate or even overestimate you know, kind of what uh, the implications of this are. First of all, in the Russian case, the Russians knew that Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction. And they kept telling uh, the US over and over again, and of course, they weren't exactly believed because you know, when you've got people whose um, day job is to lie for a living, you know, when you've got Putin, a uh, KGB officer as president, and people around him whose you know, kind of business is usually subterfuge and covert action, you know, when they're actually telling the truth, it's sometimes you know, kind of hard to gauge that. And I was in a, a meeting um, with uh, Kremlin officials in 2003, before the US invasion, uh, with uh, <clears throat> my then boss at the time, um, Jim Steinberg, who was then my boss at Brookings, who had just been Deputy National Security Advisor. And um, he and others you know, were not convinced uh, that uh, Saddam Hussein was bluffing. They couldn't understand why he would bluff. And the Kremlin officials said, well, of course he's bluffing. He's bluffing to the people around him. You know, he's bluffing to Iran, he's bluffing to the whole of the region, he's bluffing to you, you know, because, you know, otherwise he's worried, you know, that he would be overthrown. And we weren't getting it, you know, because it's, you know, the Russians are very, you know, astute at these kinds of things, and they were actually signaling it. So when uh, the um, United States decided to invade Iraq, the Russians concluded that it wasn't faulty intelligence or groupthink or any of the issues that, you know, it turned out to be, uh, of wishful thinking, but it was a, it was a deliberate move um, based on a desire to overturn uh, basically Saddam Hussein in revenge for you know everything that had you know happened uh, previously, and to do the unfinished business of you know the first uh, Gulf War. So everything really, in, in many respects proceeds from that in terms of how Putin you know thinks about the United States. He thinks the United States is a menace uh, that is then and it, it fits into his you know views of the Cold War of the United States that uh, is intent on overthrowing governments uh, that, it re that it really doesn't like. And then you have the color revolutions, you have the Arab Spring, the color revolutions in you know, Georgia and Ukraine and elsewhere. Putin's convinced that the CIA behind all of this, you know, things that continue doing everything you know, that CIA you know, did in the 70s or Mossadegh and you know, Iran, for example. And then with the Arab Spring, um, he sees that also, not that the United States is caught by surprise, and he can't quite figure out why the United States wanted to see Mubarak, you know, its guy in, you know, basically in, in Egypt, uh, toppled, but he figures it's because of, you know, some larger conspiracy. He always thinks that they're more capable of conspiracies than they actually are. Now, we could go back, you know, because, I, as I was just saying, there's a lot of precursors, you know, to Iraq. Uh, but it's, see, that's the context that really kind of sets the tone, you know, for the next... Uh, two decades, but it's also um, Iraq. Um, the interpretation of Iraq is based on you know Vietnam, Haiti, Panama, you know everything else as well, and you know Bay pigs, you know you name it, about all the things that you know been there, you know done that before. And there's never on the part of the Russians um, a kind of recognition that we might have changed. Uh, every conversation you know that I had with them, they say, oh no, but you are this and you are that, and you're doing this, and it was very hard to explain that actually at that particular point we weren't uh, because. You know, their view is very much shaped by, as you're pointing out here, 50 plus years uh, of US foreign policy, as the rest of the world is as well. And so when you know, Putin makes the case that the United States is doing this and that, it's not that it's necessarily seen as disinformation, it's seen as information you know, by other countries. As I said, when we talked to the Brazilians and the South Africans and others, they're of that same view. And that's exactly what we're seeing. I'm on a, you know, kind of an endless list that sometimes I wish I wasn't on, and I was reading it this morning in terms of just some of the viewpoints about what everybody thinks the United States is doing, what the conspiracy that they think that we you know, perpetrated in 
Gaza with Hamas. I mean, I was reading today that now the United States set off, you know, kind of October 7th in this endless list of. But people will believe that because that's kind of, you know, the framing uh, which has been engendered, which people like Putin have, you know, basically uh, fed into over these last couple of decades. Others? Uh, yeah, this is, um, I'm thinking about Putin and Biden and their sources of power and the differences. We talked about the divisiveness in this country and the extent to which it's almost impossible to figure out uh, how you bring people together. And you gave us the challenge of doing that. One of the things that Putin has as a source of power right now is um, the threat of, that he sees in, in the United States and his ability to make people in Russia believe that in a way that's just amazing. So they seem more homogenous in terms of their position. Biden, we don't, with a war by proxy. Is there a way of, you know, the power that can be had from a threat of an external power? We don't have that, right? Is there any way of having that? having people in leadership positions emphasize the extent to which Russia is really a threat. Could you just paraphrase that? Yeah, could you hear at the back? Uh, the question no, I could. No, no, so it's a question about um, Putin using the external threats, uh, the threat of another power as a unifying you know, force, and you know, would we be able to uh, basically use uh, the idea of the threat of Russia as a, as a unifying force? Well, look, I mean, we've, we've tried at various points, and I would say probably inadvisably, um, to use the rallying point of the threat from Iran um, at different points, uh, and also China uh, as a rallying point. In fact, I think that the, uh, the China um, efforts has really backfired. Uh, and what I would say about that is, again, going back to these discussions that uh, my colleagues at Brookings have basically had with counterparts, is that the more we've talked about China, the more people elsewhere become convinced that we're heading towards a confrontation with China and that we're, we're basically everything is a preparation for that. Mm. When we talked about China's watching <coughs> on Ukraine, of course, we were worrying about Taiwan and attacks on Taiwan if we didn't get that right in terms of security. Uh, we're also worrying you know, that China would get ideas you know, from uh, the conflict there and ways to do things or not to do things. And of course, that, that, that then again fed into this sort of idea that um, uh, the United States is just gearing up for an assault on China. And of course, you also get a backlash, you know, for Asian Americans and you know other, you know, Chinese scholars who are, you know, basically innocent of any kind of, you know, effort on the part of China. But then, you know, we get into that kind of the old red scare uh, routine that you know we had back uh, at various points. But we're obviously not very good at calibrating you know, these kinds of issues. And if you think back to when Mitt Romney uh, declared Russia still to be our geopolitical foe, and he wasn't, um, you know, wrong, of course. Uh, it's just that he didn't give extra context uh, to this. Remember that President Obama you know, told uh, Romney that you know, the 20th century was waiting you know, for its uh, foreign policy back again. Uh, and Romney was actually accurate in the depiction of how Russia saw itself. But you know, Obama's reaction was because we no longer saw Russia as a threat. I mean, I think you know, in part, you know, th this problem is, and again, anybody who thinks that you know, Russia is a threat continues to get labeled a kind of crazy hawk. And I wouldn't say that that's kind of, you know, what Mitt Romney was here. He was just accurately describing what Putin, the people around him in the Kremlin think. That's not Russia writ large. It's not the Russian people writ large. In fact, if you look at polling, the Russian people are actually, or Russian people expressed in polling, and not the Russian people writ large, because you don't really know who's getting reached in polls. But let's just say it's, it's not just ambiguous. It actually points in a different direction that there's not hostility towards the United States per se. But there's kind of hostility towards kind of U.S. policies, uh, but that's also whipped up, you know, basically by Putin. What Putin also has is repression, uh, and part of the reason that you're getting, you know, such um, uh, difficulty in trying to gauge where the popular sentiment in Russia is, is because actually saying anything at all uh, is likely to lead to um, some pretty serious consequences. You probably just saw in the press. This um, I mean, horrible, remarkable story of a young woman um, who put some uh, stickers on some supermarket labels, maybe five of them anti-war, and has now got a seven to eight year term. And she's a performance artist. She made an incredibly eloquent, heartfelt appeal you know, to uh, Russian people you know, about this during her sentencing. 
but you know, she's somebody without any kind of uh, political heft. She's not uh, Alexei Navalny, who wants to be president, or Vladimir Karamuza, a colleague of mine, who also you know, has expressed interest in sometime being you know, Russian president. She's not a political opponent of Putin, but she's there so that nobody dares stick their head uh, above the parapet. We all saw what happened to Yevgeny Prigozhin, you know, falling from the biggest window in the sky in a plane. I mean, that's always you know, the threat that something nasty will happen to people. Uh, so, you know, Putin is not so much about rallying against an, an enemy image, which is also useful, but it's really about how that manifests itself inside. It's that combination of rallying against an enemy and then imprisoning people because of, you know, purported affiliations or denouncing, you know, the Russian military. It's the fear factor. There's a lady over here saying it's fear. It absolutely is fear. Putin is adept at playing with fear, and I think we have to be careful not to get into that as well. I mean, that's actually another feature of our divisive politics at the moment, is fear. Mm-hmm. Fears are often unfounded. Fears are not, you know, it's just a, a psychological game. I mean, I, my, I, my argument would be that America isn't in the terrible condition that people are purporting it to be, certainly not as I've seen it from all kinds of parts of the country that I've been in, but it's that sort of fear of the unknown, the fear of, you know, your fellow Americans that's been in Germany. Putin is a master at manipulating those fears externally and internally. I think we've got time for one more, if it's very quick. Um, so, looking at you know, Navalny being in jail and, and sort of quasi-nationalist leaders who also might want to be president one day, what do you see the trajectory of Russian politics being in 20 years, you know, when perhaps Putin isn't at the head? What do you see there? So the question is about the trajectory of uh, Russian politics of the next 20 years, given Navalny being in jail and you know, Putin obviously holding on indefinitely. Um, well, Putin could very easily, um, or potentially, be in power for um, another couple of uh, decades, or certainly into the second decade. Um, you might have noticed that he stopped making ageist comments about uh, our politicians after a while, because he was projecting being in power until the 2030s, when he'll be into his 80s himself. Uh, and um, you know, there's so many uh, discussions about Putin's health body doubles, you know, this kind of thing. When I was in the UK, there was a Daily Mail expose suggesting that there's multiple doubles of Putin running around and some Japanese uh, artificial intelligence experts have been doing, you know, all kinds of uh, video assessments and suggesting that there's multiple doubles, maybe even a doubles running the country. I think this is kind of part of a problem that we have, that Putin has just uh, basically extinguished all other ideas of um, other players that we even got into the discussion of doubles. Although I did talk to someone from one of the UK intelligence services who think there might be one. But it's just used to go out and kiss babies because that's not the thing that Putin likes doing. So there's been a couple of times when a Putin has um, waded into crowds and become very effusive in kissing people. Uh, and you know, basically that's, I mean, he's a germaphobe, um, you know, let alone all the other implications of this. But uh, the people are basically saying that could very easily be you know, somewhere else. It's not uncommon. I mean, we have in Hollywood, people have stunt doubles and you know, body doubles, so why not? But that's not a, a strategy for the, for the future. There are certainly, as you're suggesting, people around Putin who would like to step in you know, if something happens to him. Some of the hardliners, uh, there was speculation that Pigorjin, you know, for example, uh, might have been, you know, one of the uh, pretendants, you know, for the future. I think actually Pigorjin was used to scare the elite into sort of thinking that there was somebody much worse than Putin. I mean, Putin's bad enough, but he was somebody who, you know, may or may not have killed someone, you know, with his own hands with a sledgehammer. You know, somebody who, you know, um, uh, was basically completely ruthless and rather terrifying to look at. And um, everybody should then think that, wow, thank God we've still got Vladimir Putin, who is actually you know, quite rational and more likely to have you know, somebody you know, who, who we know and isn't quite so reckless who might replace him. Technically, if Putin died today, uh, it wouldn't be the double. Um, it would be actually the prime minister, Mr. Mishustin. And there's also a kind of a feeling that there's this technocratic elite around uh, Putin, including the head of the central bank, a lot of the people who were there in the government who are very capable um, of running the country. And in fact, you might have um, seen uh, that the Chinese leadership have gone out and met with the Prime Minister, the head of the Central Bank, and some of the others. Certainly, there's, there's so many Russians in exile at the moment, uh, just more than a million and you know, here, uh, all kinds of you know, different discussions going on in Brussels, and here in DC, and in Berlin, and Paris, and in London, about Russian technocratic exiles, people who were in the government, about the potential of putting the country immediately on a different path, if not Navalny as president, but a technocratic, um, you know, basically placeholder uh, government who could uh, move the country forward. 
Now, will that happen? That's a good question, because all of it depends on the circumstances. But I would just say, in the case of Russia, you can't rule anything out. Because after Stalin died, you got, in fact, a kind of collective, slightly chaotic uh, government arrangement. Then you got Khrushchev. Khrushchev was ousted because he went a bit over, overboard on the chaotic side of things. And then you got a kind of a steady, um, but you know, somewhat stagnant uh, leadership for quite some time. And then you get Mikhail Gorbachev, who was a complete surprise. And Boris Yeltsin, who basically dismantles the Soviet Union. And it's kind of like a sort of wash, you know, rinse and repeat cycle in kind of Russian history of sort of repression, opening up a bit of chaos and, you know, kind of, and back around, you know, in circles again. So I would suggest that all kinds of things are really possible, but a lot really depends on where things go in the future, the manner in which uh, Putin departs the scene, and also how we all behave as well. Because I think we've learned a lot of lessons uh, from uh, the last decades. And, you know, the kind of question also will be whether there's a path back you know, for Russia uh, into relations with Europe. Um, certainly, you know, Russia's moved in a different direction, looking east towards China, uh, towards the Middle East, trying to, you know, cash in under Putin on the horrors of what's going on in uh, Gaza. But if we start, you know, kind of think over the longer term about how the relations with uh, Russia would be regularised, beyond obviously making sure that uh, Russia, you know, basically pays for what it's done in Ukraine, you know, that might also kind of set a different path. I think we just have to be very flexible and very attentive, you know, to the situation. Everyone, please. Oh, right. Two, seven. So hopefully it's one of your cars and you might be able to take care of it. But once again, thank you. <laughs>